You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The one who saves his life will lose it. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Life is like a box of chocolates. Ways of life and forms of life and such matters concerning life have occupied sages and philosophers and poets and preachers as long as human beings became wordslingers. And yet attempting the good life seems to require that each generation start anew somehow, to shape lives and to seek life for the first time every time. Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko's recent book, The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning, grew out of a redesigned Introduction to Philosophy class at Notre Dame that deliberately sets that shaping and seeking of a good life at the Project Center. And we'll talk about that at some length before too long. For now, the Christian Humanist Profiles podcast is happy to welcome Dr. Paul Blaschko to the show to talk about that journey and that book. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. I usually don't start with the origin stories of books. I like to get right to the ideas, but this story is a cool one, so I'm, I'm making an exception. Talk about the transformation of the required core curriculum philosophy course at the University of Notre Dame and how that transformation gave rise to this book. Yeah, so Notre Dame as a Catholic institution has long had a philosophy requirement. Uh, I talk to some of my secular colleagues sometimes and uh, you know they're shocked to, to hear how many requirements we've had over the years. When Notre Dame started, we actually had six required philosophy courses. I mean, this is way back, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but we still have our, our core uh, philosophy uh, requirements. We've got two of them. And the course that turned into God and the Good Life or the course that kind of preceded it uh, was one that Megan Sullivan was teaching uh, when I came here as a PhD student. Uh, it was a typical intro to philosophy course, right? We would, uh, you know, give students the Nicomachean ethics. Uh, we would read this great quote uh, from Aristotle that said, you know, we were inquiring uh, not just so that we might know what virtue is, but so that we might become good, so that we can seek the good life, right? Otherwise, yeah, I know that line well. Here, yep. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, everything we're doing here is useless, right? And this would get us fired up. It would get our students fired up. Uh, and then we would quiz them. We'd be like, okay, like what, what order do the philosophers come in? Or like, you know, what, what section of the Nicomachean ethics is this from? And there's a huge disconnect, right? There's a disconnect in our teaching. Um, and I think the conversation then around, so, uh, uh, that tension, uh, that Megan and I were, were experiencing is really what gave rise to, uh, this thought that, you know, we could reimagine in introduction to philosophy, uh, and that there weren't as many constraints as, as you might think, Right. Uh, in our lives, philosophy has this deeply personal uh, role to play, right? Megan and I uh, were constantly sending back and forth op-eds in the New York Times that were like, you know, dealing with like very concrete things. Like, here's how you should, you know, date. Here's how you should parent. Here's how you should. And it was like, these are, there are deep philosophical assumptions here, right? And we go back and forth and we argue about them. And so for us, philosophy is, is a way of relating to these big questions that we all worry about and that we're all, um, you know, uh, thinking about and, and using to shape our lives. So we thought, you know, why not open that world up to our students now? Uh, and I'll, I'll just really briefly mention really briefly, like there is a trade off here. There's an opportunity cost. Right. And that is we're not preparing our freshman students to then go into this sort of academic discipline and tradition. Uh, because we're not giving them a, a systematic overview of even the discipline of philosophy, right? We don't break it down and say, well, here's metaethics and here's, you know, sort of meta virtue epistemology or whatever. 
we're not we're not giving them that kind of information. And, and certainly that's something that an intro course could uh, seek to impart. And, you know, it could be a really excellent intro course. We're not doing that. We're saying, look, uh, for our students that are going to continue that journey and, and, you know, sort of go into the discipline of philosophy. Uh, excellent. We've got a great curriculum here at Notre Dame. And, and you know, you can sort of walk that path for 99 percent of our students who are not doing that. Uh, for whom this is going to be kind of their their one big or one of the two big sort of uh, shots that philosophy has to really have an impact in their life. Uh, we really want them to walk away thinking, gosh, Aristotle's got something to say uh, about this sort of deep angst that I have about, you know, who I am as a person and, and you know, wanting to grow. Uh, we want them to see philosophy as uh, a tradition, a very rich tradition uh, that they can use to to improve their lives, uh, to think harder, to sort of be better friends and and you know be, better uh, family members. Um, so sorry that I kind of got uh, uh, off on a tangent there. No, but- that's great. That's great. And, and listeners, I mean, you'll get even more of that story uh, when you go out and get this book, which all of you are going to go out and get this book. Now, Paul, listeners who have heard me on a few podcasts have doubtless heard me talk about Aristotelian notions of human nature. I talk about it probably more than most people care to hear. But for those listeners who are recent arrivals, talk a little bit about the ways that starting points, goals, and practical guidance relate to each other and to the possibilities of human existence. Yeah. So one of the things I love about Aristotle, and I'll say too, uh, I love kind of the Aristotelian tradition, very broadly construed. Uh, You know, in the book, Megan and I talk about our Catholic faith, and and obviously Aristotle has had just a huge impact uh, on uh, that tradition, on on sort of the uh, uh, Catholic uh, teaching and sort of uh, thinking about what we are as human beings. Um, I'd say one of the things I love about Aristotle is he's not afraid to make claims and to back up those claims with arguments about what we are and about how that impacts how we should live and what we should do, right? Uh, So the really basic way that I explain it to my students is I say, for Aristotle, we are particular kinds of beings. We are particular kinds of creatures. Uh, And for any kind of a thing, you can use the, you know, we can get fancy and use words like essence or, you know, uh, sort of nature, you know. Uh, You can use that to figure out uh, what makes an excellent thing of that kind, right? The simple example, the one that, that virtue ethicists often throw out is, look, if you've got a knife and you know uh, what its purpose is, what its function is, uh, what it's for, well, then you can define what makes it excellent, right? So a knife is excellent if it's sharp, if it's dense enough, if it's got a handle. Uh, well, the same thing holds true uh, of creatures like us, Aristotle things, right? Now, the unique thing is that we're much more complex than a knife. Uh, and our function is is this really distinctive thing. It's it's it involves our reflective capacities. It involves our ability to direct our lives, to act in the world, uh, to intend to do things. Uh, but it also involves um, certain features of personality that a lot of people uh, have recognized over the years to be you know sort of to to have patterns, right? Uh, so we know about humans that. Uh, really generous humans are, are good humans, but there are limits to generosity. If you don't uh, take into account your needs or your family's needs, there's something wrong with that, right? Now, Aristotle latches onto that and he says, let me sketch out the patterns here. Let me let me look at all of these different ways in which we can be excellent. Let me consider how they impact or affect each other, right? 
Uh, and let me give you a, a, a very broad picture, right? A picture of what we would now say, what we would call uh, virtue, right? What does it look like to, to be virtuous? Now, one of the things that sometimes surprises my students, although, uh, you know, this is it's funny because it just changes sort of with culture and with what's in the air or whatever. But some of my students think they, they come in thinking like, oh, virtue, like I know what virtue is. Virtue is what, you know, certain politicians talk about. Ah, it's like, you know, OK, it's a really politicized notion. Uh, and for Aristotle, it's not. It's it's simply uh, excellence as a human being. Right. Uh, and so you can be a virtue ethicist. Um you know, and, and and have very different views about how humans should live, depending on what you think that core essence or that core nature is, what your function or purpose is. Uh, so I've sometimes heard people talk about Nietzsche as a, a, a virtue ethicist. And you think like, there is no one more different, you know, than, than Aristotle when you start thinking about, you know, how you ought to live, how you ought to treat other people. And yet, you know, if you think, okay, well, no, excellence is, you know, domination. I'm no Nietzsche scholar. So, you know, I don't want to like, uh, uh, you know, think throw him under the bus or anything. Uh, but if you think that's what excellence is, then yeah, there's going to be implications for the kinds of uh, character traits that you should acquire, the ways that you should live. Uh, so that, that that's the broad way that we think about it. You know, who you are, like both who you are, but also like what you are really matters when you're trying to figure out how to live well, how to live an excellent life. And to go a very different direction with that, I mean, when uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark says that, you know, uh, those who follow me must forsake mother and father, sister and brother, children and family, and so on and so forth, I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, the uh, the priorities certainly get changed radically, and the sequence of things get changed radically, but the underlying structure you know, this is now the nature of human existence, and therefore the implication is this is what a good life is. Uh, I mean, that that underlying structure is still there. Yeah, I love that. And I love thinking, I mean, I wish I, and maybe someday I will, had more time to think about differences between Greek and Christian sort of embodiments of virtue ethics. But one of the things that really strikes me about the Gospels is exactly like you're saying here, the way in which Christ is able to say like, hey, Here's this kind of broad framework. I mean, he's not like giving like this philosophical treatise or something like that. <laughs> but here's this broad framework. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of turn on its head some of the things you think are human excellences. And to me, you know, uh, one of the neat things about that is I can really inhabit both of those worlds. There's a lot of philosophical worldviews that it's hard for me to inhabit. But when I look at uh, Greek virtue ethics. Uh, especially, let me take an example here. When I look at um, you know Marcus Aurelius or the Stoics, and I see them saying, "Look, virtue is to remain unchanged regardless of external circumstances. So if your if your child you know is is uh, killed or, or if your child dies, you should be the same man." I think to myself, I, I think about this, and I I think, man, if I was sort of inhabiting that worldview, if I didn't have the religious views and the religious beliefs that I had. I can see how that is the conclusion that you could arrive at and say, yeah, there is something deeply sort of excellent or virtuous about really detaching yourself, this kind of extreme detachment. But when I actually like sort of inhabit my own worldview and I see Christ saying things like, you know, uh, the greatest love that you can have for somebody is to give up your life for a friend. I think like, Man, he is just he's just made this really cool move where he said, like, yeah, like it, you know, virtue, excellence, this is important. And here substantively, here is how you do it. And he's provided this example. To me, that is, it is, I don't know, it's just ah, like 
just this amazing uh, sort of twist uh, that I think then, you know, thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas pick up on and they say, yeah, we're going to sort of revalue uh, human nature and show you, you know, based on revelation, based on what we think we know about human nature, how the Greeks almost had it right. The Romans almost had it right. Uh, but, but man, the difference makes a huge difference. Like the, the, those, those differences make a huge difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to turn to the, to the book's first full chapter. Uh, it offers an ideal for living among people who disagree, uh, offer reasons, listen to reasons, respond to reasons. Now to me, uh, that's self-evidently better than attempting not to disagree with people or avoiding people when we do disagree. But then I keep reading articles about the great sort where people actually move to places where people don't disagree and people skipping family Thanksgiving dinners. So offer us some reasons. What's good about reasoned disagreement? Yeah. And I, I have to be totally honest here. I have gone back and forth on this over the course of maybe the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, in part because, uh, I think that disagreement for a lot of people, especially philosophical disagreement, it's this intellectual exercise that comes with a lot of baggage, right? Uh, I remember going home for Christmas, uh, as an undergraduate philosophy major, uh, and sitting around the table and really using argument, really using these, these ideas that I was getting in my classes, uh, to kind of. I don't want to say bully. I mean, I, you know, I, I want to be like kind to my past self, uh, but really to to kind of wield a bit of power to say like, oh, you know, we've been having, you know, I'd, I'd had these conversations with my family for years about politics or different things, but now I had this kind of new felt power. And, and I thought like, man, I can really uh, sort of stand up for myself here. And that felt really good. Uh, now, I, I think it's in that chapter we've got, um, a quote from Plato right at the beginning where he says, you know, young men, when they first learn how to argue, they're like puppies that are like tearing each other apart and they're like running around and just, you know, and I, I very much think that was the phase that I was in. Right. I was like, I had discovered argument. I thought, oh, this is incredible. Um, but I, I, there wasn't much to distinguish me from uh, the sophists at that point, other than I genuinely did love the truth. Right. Uh, uh, and the sophists that we that we you know bring up and, and come in for a lot of criticism in our book, uh, they're pretty indifferent to the truth. They just want to persuade people. Uh, but I, I was using argument kind of in a sophistical way. I was kind of using it just to um, wield a bit of power. So I definitely now sort of you know with, with the benefit of this hindsight, I recognize you know the way in which philosophical argument can be abused or can be used um uh sort of for ill in 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 relationships but and this is to answer your question because i i you know have kind of come all the way back around uh i also think that reasoning with somebody is a way of connecting and for me it's a it's a, it's a really deep way of connecting it's a way of seeing the world together in uh a cooperative uh mode let me make that less abstract um you know, whereas a lot of a lot of times we tend to think of disagreement and argument as kind of an adversarial process. And sometimes it is. And sometimes we explicitly do that because we think setting up some adversarial process is going to get us to the truth. OK, great. Fine. But when you when you use philosophical arguments, when you connect with somebody else and ask them for their reasons and then jump on board with them and say, let me help you think that through a bit. If what you're saying is true, then this other thing would be true. And then, you know, letting them kind of react to that and saying, 
man, that is super interesting. Well, let me tell you what I think. And then you say, I totally disagree with you. And here's why. There's there's a, a way in which you're making yourself vulnerable. Uh, and, and you're asking the other person that you're disagreeing with to make themselves vulnerable. Uh, and and then, you know, putting yourself in a position to work together to actually think through some of these big picture questions uh, that a lot of us have that really are, are tearing us apart and really dividing us, um, you know, for, for a lot of really dumb reasons, for a lot of really bad reasons. Now, I don't think that's easy. I think that's incredibly hard. Uh, you know, I write about my my relationship with my mom in the book and how my mom and I go back all the time, go back and forth all the time. And, you know, we have these these conversations and debates. I still have those with her. And I, you know, I still I think we both reach uh, points in these conversations where we think, is this worth it? Like, wouldn't we be happier if we just like pretended like, you know, that like that we didn't disagree or just, you know, kind of swept that under the rug? And I think the answer is like, well, yes, but not in a uh, authentic sort of way. It's like it's like in a relationship or a marriage, like pretending like there's not a problem, like great short term strategy, like that's not going to work overall. Right. Uh, uh, and, and you know, as long as you're OK with the ambiguity, as long as you're OK, you know, ending up in different spots, but remaining open, then uh, my experience is that there are good, virtuous, charitable ways of engaging that can bring us closer together. Um, yeah, maybe. Okay. Oh man. Last thought. Last thought. Uh, Keep rolling, man. Keep rolling. I also recognize. I certainly recognize. Um, you know, when you're talking about the big sort or, or, or people, you know, finding communities that that agree with them. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's there's a really bad way of doing that. It's like, okay, I've like, uh, I, I'm being exposed to all these ideas that I disagree with. I'm just going to go get together with all the people that I agree with, form like a bubble or an echo chamber, and then feel good about ourselves. Um, on the other hand, it is really important to be a part of a community or a tradition that can help you think through your deepest health commitments in uh, a really sophisticated but supportive way as well, right? So I think one of the beautiful things about society and culture is that we can have those uh, communities overlap uh, uh, in, in, in sort of, you know, just really sophisticated ways uh, so that we can go and talk amongst people that we agree with and think, okay, what is, like, what is going on here? Like, what do we think about this kind of a thing? Uh, I think the danger is, is, you know, when we uh, only want to sort of hang out with those people or we want to like build a life where we don't have to talk to anybody else. Um, so, so yeah, I think, um, I think this involves and, and requires a lot of, uh, prudential judgment. I mean, to get back to Aristotle it requires a lot of prudence, right. And figuring out, okay, you know, am I isolating myself, uh, in the news sources I'm reading or in the people I'm hanging out with, uh, or, Am I sort of, you know, having this healthy balance between uh, interactions that that kind of build up uh, the reasons that I have for believing the things I do, and then interactions that really challenge me to go further? Um, yeah, so so I think yeah, as with as with many things, it's it's all about that balance, that uh, middle way. Yeah, I remember, uh, and this was years before I ever read the phrase "the great sort," but uh, I remember in I, I remember the year is two thousand four. Um, and I was sitting in a coffee shop in Athens, Georgia, where I was a, a, a graduate student. And uh, at the table next to me at the coffee shop, I heard two townies talking to each other. And uh, 
one of them said to the other, well, I know that John Kerry is going to be the next president because I don't know anyone who's voting for George W. Bush. And I just remember thinking, I mean, we are in Georgia. I mean, just pick a cardinal direction, go 10 miles in that direction, and sure. you'll find hundreds of people who are going to vote for George W. Bush. But I mean, the sense I got is that these two people never left downtown Athens. Sure. So, sure. you know, sure. I, I, I guess I uh, that, that's kind of a visceral reality for me because I, I actually saw it happen in a place where I didn't think it should be happening. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to turn to the generosity chapter because I read this one and I wondered whether I live on the same planet that some of the uh, thinkers you quote live on. But I'm going to ask about the main sparring partner in that generosity chapter, namely effective altruism. So who in the world had the thought that uh, become a billionaire and give away millions ought to be a moral norm? And uh, more importantly, what alternatives does this book propose? Yeah. So a couple of people had this thought. I think the big uh, the big thinker that we're engaging with is Peter Singer, right? Uh, and his students. Um, in the class, we actually uh, assign a New York Times article uh, about one of his students who took his advice really literally. He was thinking about going into philosophy grad school, and Peter Singer was like, "Ah, you could do that, or you could go be an investment banker and like uh, you know save millions of lives." Well, we should and- note that Singer is a Harvard professor. Uh, yeah, Princeton, I think. Yeah, Princeton. Is it Princeton? Okay, okay. At any rate, a a college where people go on to make more money than I'm ever going to see. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, and it's it's really tortured sort of logic too, as to like how you would defend that, right? Because you could say like, well, he's actually having a lot of impact by convincing people not to do what he's doing, and I don't know. It's yeah, it's it gets very confusing. So, so yeah, right. So his student, you know, in this article that we assign our students. His student uh, goes off, becomes an investment banker, uh, lives on beans, and donates eighty percent of his income. Now, I think one thing one thing to say here is that uh, you know there's obviously something heroic about that. I mean, in some ways, and at first I, I you know really read that story and I thought like, what an idiot! Like this is crazy. I really like I did not have a charitable view of this guy at all. Uh, the more that I you know kind of come back to this story, you know, there's almost something. Um, saintly about that kind of renunciation and detachment and you know uh but it's it's coming out of and it's totally divorced from any sort of bigger picture framework uh about the good and about what we owe to people and about why you're doing what you're doing uh and to me that's that's kind of terrifying it's kind of scary um so so uh okay so what is effective altruism? You know, what, what are some alternatives uh, that we're proposing? Effective altruism is is right, like you said. It's it's basically um, you know earn to give, like earn as much money as you possibly can. Uh, and and really, a, a lot of times, effective altruists are talking to um, you know students at Princeton. They're talking to to students uh, uh, who are you know at a very particular sort of socioeconomic uh, position, and they're saying, look. We know that you can make a lot of money because of how, you know, our capitalist system is structured and because of like the uh, privilege that you've got and the sort of social capital, et cetera. Uh, So what should you do? Well, you should do the most good that you can do. You should maximize your impact on the world. Uh, How do you do that? Well, you make a bunch of money uh, and then you donate that to the most effective charities that you possibly can. Uh, Again, something about this is, is attractive. And I should say, too. One of the reasons we consider this and and really go back and forth throughout the book is because there's something really attractive about this to our students, right? Uh, a lot of our students hear this view and they think, okay, that that's got to be the way to go. Um, now I'll I'll psychologize just for one second. 
I think for some of our students, it's because uh, this gives them uh, a, a way of kind of threading this needle, figuring out this problem that, that, that they find themselves in. Uh, here at Notre Dame, a lot of our students are incredible. Like they're, they're, they're amazing. They're high achieving. Uh, they do have a lot of earning potential, right? Uh, they, they're going to go and earn way more money than I've ever uh, seen or heard about, right? Uh, and this this is kind of a, a a really basic way of saying, okay, so what should you do with that? That's a lot of potential. Uh, what should you do with that? Well, you could think in these really black and white binary terms. Either I should make as much money as I can and just spend it on myself and acquire power. And people, you know, rightly look at that and think like, ugh, like that does not like look like a good life. Uh, or I should do that and you know make an impact in the world, change the world, do something good for the world. Okay, so I, I can see why that's an attractive kind of view. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, we worry, and and we sort of you know give give reasons in the book to worry uh, that pursuing that route uh, isn't going to result in the kind of rich, full, integrated life that we actually want to live. Right? Um, think about what your life would look like if you really took that advice to heart, right? I mean, it would look like uh, uh, this student of Peter Singer's who, who you know, is living on beans and doing doing work that he doesn't care that much about. Now, you know, now let's use the fictional version of this guy because maybe he loves investment banking at this point. I don't know. Uh, but in my case, right? So suppose I could have done this, uh, doing work that I don't care about, Honestly, work that I, I find sort of problematic or, or, or you know, uh, worrying for some reasons, like uh, investment banking, having all these negative effects, but then thinking like, okay, but overall it balances out. Here we go. Uh, to me, that doesn't look like a good life. That doesn't look like it doesn't have the shape uh, or texture uh, of a well-lived life. Uh, instead, the alternative that we're offering is we're saying, look, you've got to think about these things uh, at a level of granularity uh, that is sort of more of a human scale, right? What what can you do to become a better father uh, or a better friend? Uh, and this is going to involve operating within that community, within that sphere. Uh, it's going to involve, you know, um, building up certain habits uh, uh, and virtues uh, within those personal relationships. Uh, that wouldn't be available to the effective altruist, right? Like if I'm uh, in 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 the community that I live in, if I notice, look, uh, there's some people that have uh, really bad drug problems, and and look, they they've you know sort of lost their home or they're in danger of losing their home. I mean, this is a really dramatic example, but uh, you know, to see that and then to be attentive to the good of that person. Uh, well, that's really inefficient. You know, I could I could instead say like, ah, sucks to be them. But like, you know, overall, like the system uh, is going to be better off if I sort of earn a bunch of money, ignore them uh, and put my money into the system and then help somebody who's even worse off than they are. Uh, now, now, again, it, or not again, I, I guess I, I want to flag here and, and, and mention virtue ethics isn't saying that we shouldn't care about these systematic problems. Uh, or that we shouldn't, you know, you know, create policies or support policies or think about institutions that could, you know, deal with these on a, on a, on a really large scale. But it is saying there's something perverse about uh, ignoring your neighbor uh, or being morally allowed to or required to ignore your neighbor uh, 
uh, and desensitize yourself to that sort of human good that is embodied in your community right next to you uh because you think oh no like my my only moral obligation is to maximize the good that i'm doing and here's the exact system i'm doing that uh so so you know our, our alternative is i would say a more personal alternative it's uh one that recognizes uh again and and presupposes in some ways uh that we're social creatures that we live in community that our character traits that our virtues are going to be fashioned and shaped by the way that we treat people that we see on a day-to-day -day basis uh, and that sometimes uh, inefficiency, in some broad sense, is what virtue requires of us. Um, so, so it's you know uh, the effective altruist. We we go back and forth with them quite a bit throughout the book, and and not just the effective altruist. Really, you know, kind of the consequentialist utilitarian view, sort of really broadly construed. Uh, we kind of go back and forth um, for many reasons, but I do think this is one of the most fruitful kind of. Uh, dialectics or debates that's been going on for a long time, but really in the past hundred years or so um, have had has had some some big flashpoints uh, that I think are really important and interesting. Very good, very good. I'll, I'll confess when you said uh, you know students are trying to thread the needle, I thought a camel was going to be going through it pretty soon. But <laughs> I, uh, you know, that just might be my own uh, instincts as far as biblical uh, reference. I love it. I love it. I, I, I want to stick with the workplace for a moment, and I confess that I got angrier than I probably should have when you turn to the employers that call themselves quote families unquote uh, and purport to be centers of value and purpose for their employees and. Uh, you know, it's largely because I've known too many people who've been abused by those kinds of systems. When we have to navigate, though, between the scylla of employers that call themselves family or ministry and the charybdis of labor from which we are totally alienated, what does a uh, Karl Marx and Aristotle tag team have to offer as we uh, think through those questions? Totally. I think this is one of the hardest questions uh, uh, for uh, like philosophically minded, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who, who are, who are thinking about how to set up a structure or workplace. Um, I think it's really complex. I think it's really difficult. Uh, and, and part of the reason I say that is, you know, since writing this book, uh, the, the work sort of philosophy of work area is where I've really, uh, uh, dive, uh, like sort of take, taken my thinking. Um, and so I've, I've read a bunch more about, um, ways that people are thinking about human flourishing in the context of work. Uh, and it turns out there's just, there's a thousand puzzles. Uh, on the one hand, look, there's something really good about uh, a community that you draw meaning and purpose from. And it turns out in the modern world that the workplace is one of the main or one of the most reliable places where we could draw that kind of meaning and purpose, right? Uh, for a lot of reasons, there are just a lot of communities uh, that have sort of diminished in the amount of power and influence they have over our lives. Uh, and so it turns out a lot of people just look to work for structure and meaning and purpose and value. Uh, and that's a really, like, on the one hand, you think, well, that's a really good thing, right? Uh, people are getting meaning and purpose from work. And if you're an employer, you, you know, you might think like, yeah, you know, you don't want to set up a factory where people are coming and counting beans every day, doing this meaningless work. Wouldn't it be better if they were coming in and, you know, you had like the Silicon Valley style playground and they all live together and okay. <clears throat> all right. On the other hand, uh, like you mentioned, so in, in the book, uh, we really worry about the ways in which employers uh, are 
posing as communities that they are not and cannot be, right? Uh, so if you come to work and you think this is my family, and a lot of employers talk like this, right? They say like, you are part of the, you know, like, like whatever, Anderson grocery chain family, right? Uh, it's a weird way to talk. Uh, very you, common. Yeah, it's very common. You think, okay, this is my family. And then the next day the markets change and they have to fire you. You think like, I've just been fired by my family. And you think you can't fire people from family, right? Like that's one of the great things about family. That's one of the reasons why we feel so secure in this community of family. Uh, I mean, certainly certain kinds of fractures or ruptures can happen, but there is no sort of way of just saying like, you know what, you know, my six-year-old is not sort of contributing to the bottom line. I'm sorry, buddy, you're fired. Like, I can't do that. And, and, and you know, this is a really good thing that I can't do that. Okay, so what do we do? Now, on the one hand, the, the alternative that we uh, raise in the book uh, is this religious community in Iowa, right? Um, now, let me explain the alternative there. And then let me say why it's still really difficult to translate that into a contemporary context. Uh, okay, so we've got this uh, uh, order of, of monks and uh, they make coffins, like that's what they do. Uh, but interestingly, that's not what they've always done, right? They've got this monastery. Uh, they've gone through a bunch of different things over the years, but then they noticed at one point, one of the abbots was like, you know what? We got a lot of trees around here. Uh, why don't we start like cutting those down and kind of become expert craftsmen and, and, uh, make these beautiful coffins and sell them. And, uh, very gradually again, you know, over, you know, like uh, tens of years or whatever, uh, they, they, they do this and the, the monks actually become incredible carpenters, uh, and you think like, wow, like that's that's an incredible skill. And they find it. They find it very meaningful. Uh, on the other hand, they are not a business. They are not a corporation. And so the things they say about the business side of things are crazy. Right. Uh, you know, th there's this great documentary. Uh, and again, this is the new Mallory Abbey is, is what it's called. Um, there's this great documentary where you know, they're asking like, okay, well, you know, the, like what happens when demand like just really increases? They're like, oh, nothing. We just do the same work we've always done. Like, you know, when the bell rings, we like set the tools down. Uh, and and the business manager who's in this documentary is so funny too, because he's like, it took me a long time to get used to the fact that they're not operating in this sort of profit maximization mode, right? They get to a point where they're just like, nope, like this is our output. This is what we do. Um, sometimes actually when demand goes up and, and this is a really touching story uh, after the, the documentary has happened, but, uh, you know, during COVID, uh, demand for their coffins went way up, they started just giving them away, right? And so there is this weird way in which the way of life, the way that work sort of fits into or integrates into their way of life is not governed by the logic of capitalism or the logic of business, right? And yet they really are, I think, getting the goods out of work that a lot of us are seeking, right? That kind of meaning, that purpose, but also the balance, right? Uh, and they are a family in the sense that you really can't fire a monk, right? You can be like, look, buddy, you're not, you know, you're, you're really not doing this very well. I'm going to reassign you, but you can't, you can't fire them. You can't be like, you're not making enough money for us or something like that. Okay. So there's an alternative. And in that alternative, you've got what I think of as a genuine community with a genuine common good. Uh, and this is the 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 real key concept that I, I talk about with my students all the time. 
uh, common good. It seems like a, a really easy thing. You're like, oh yeah, common good. Yeah, like uh, roads and playgrounds. You're like, no, no, no. Those are, you know, those are public goods. Those are, you know, they, they maybe serve the common good. But a common good for Aristotle is a, a, a goal, something that we're all aiming at together that unites us as a community. And the common good for units like a family or units like, a, 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 you know, a monastery, it's going to be the flourishing of all the members, like the distinctive way in which those members all flourish together. Now, if you've got a genuine common good, you've got a genuine community, then you can sort of prioritize and regulate and put things like work in the right place, in the right order. So think about the way in which work plays a role in my family's life, right? Uh, we have chores and we do our chores, and yet we would never do our chores at the expense of the well-being of our kids. We wouldn't say like, ah, we didn't vacuum so you're going to vacuum all night right like you're not going to sleep tonight like we would never do that there's a way in which you know our our sort of um obligation is first to them their flourishing their well-being their you know sort of individual and our collective good and then we're able to subordinate work which also you know plays a really crucial role in that flourishing etc to that goal to that good now here's where i say it's really puzzling because I don't think in a capitalistic structure, employers ought to be functioning in the way that the monks are functioning, in the way that that abbey is functioning. I really don't think, right? I, like I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that employers should, uh, you know, set aside the bottom line concern and you know something like that. Um, on the other hand, you you can't really have it both ways. You can't say we're a genuine community, we're a family. I care about your flourishing, and we're a for-profit enterprise that's going to maximize, you know, the amount of income that we have, et cetera. You, you've got to be really careful when you're navigating those two different ways of thinking and operating. And the the finest grain or, or most concrete conclusion that I've come to at this point is that we've just got to think uh, in really creative ways uh, about the flourishing of workers, about what a particular company can offer to that worker and what they should and should not offer to that worker and then communicate in really explicit ways uh, about those things, right? Uh, now, there's a thousand empirical complications here. Uh, so you think like, you know, maybe in an ideal world, uh, we wouldn't be living in a society where like your healthcare was dependent on uh, you're having a job because like that is a crucial thing for human flourishing. Okay. So there's a thousand complications, but if you think about it, if you kind of like, you know, uh, uh, think about it just on a smaller scale, think about like a small business that's operating in a small town uh, and think about the way in which somebody running that business can say like, look, here's what I can give you. Here's what I can't give you. Here's the security that I've got for you. Here's, you know, things that I cannot promise. Right. Okay. Uh, and then to give, to have, to have workers have that agency to say, yeah, okay, that fits into my life, uh, in the right sort of way. It, you know, allows me to sort of, you know, feed my family and provide, et cetera. Um, but that balance is just so hard to strike because the kind of agency that's required for humans to flourish in this way, man, it depends on a thousand things on, you know, economic pressures and on, you know, uh, uh, yeah, just social, cultural, just absolutely, you know, a, a thousand things.
But that's the, the kind of thought experiment in a way that I'm, I'm really hoping readers take away is, you know, look at the way that work functions in, in sort of a monastic setting. Think about, man, what a contrast that is. And then we can use that to sort of more critically evaluate the kinds of promises that employers uh, are making, uh, the, the the ways that they're operating. Uh, although I'm, you know, just sort of reiterating, I don't think there's easy answers. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I talk about uh, this to my business majors that I teach a fair bit is that the uh, the paradox of the modern business school is that you've got the economics classroom where, you know, you learn about how human beings uh, make rational choices based on given information for the uh, maximum benefit. And then right next door, you've got an advertising class where you're taught to subvert every rational process that someone might undertake in order not to buy your product. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, I, I don't have any answers either, but it's a heck of a question. Totally, totally, totally. Um, I want to turn to the uh, the God part of God and the good life. And when you go there, narrative framing remains chief in importance. So when uh, Stephen Colbert and Thomas Aquinas join us in our investigation of God questions, uh, how do we approach things differently? Yeah, so so I, I love I love that we we were able to pair these two thinkers, right? These two great thinkers from the history of philosophy, Stephen Colbert and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and and maybe as a bit of background, I'll just say you know Stephen Colbert and and this was something that uh, as we were researching the book. Um, you know, it kind of stuck in our minds because there's this great interview where Stephen Colbert is uh, talking, I think it's to Anderson Cooper, about tragedy in his life and about uh, the role of faith in his life um, in this really uh, articulate uh, way, this really incredible articulate way. Um, and and it really resonated with us. It really stuck with us. I mean, one of the things that that Colbert does, and you know, he's Catholic and kind of grew up with sort of exposure to the Catholic philosophical tradition. One of the things he does is he even frames like the way that he's talking about God uh, in a way that resonates with uh, you know some of the great proofs for God's existence throughout the history of philosophy. Um, um, so when we get to the Stephen Colbert, when we get to the Thomas Aquinas chapter. Um, one of the things that we start thinking about is uh, how when it comes to religious faith, it's important uh, to have these arguments. It's important to have these reasons for, for believing what you do. Uh, but it's also important that you don't put everything into the particular argument that you've got or that you've been convinced by. That you sort of balance those things out, and I think I'll, I'll hear, I'll even bring uh, William James into the the conversation a bit. Um, you know, think about it like this: uh, when I was getting married to my wife, when I was engaged to my wife, uh, there were a lot of reasons why I thought our marriage was going to be a good marriage. Uh, why I thought, like you know, it, it makes sense; it is good. Uh, to love each other and to commit to each other for the rest of our lives, et cetera. Would have been really weird though, if our relationship was entirely dependent on some set of arguments that I had sketched up, right? So suppose I had written down five arguments and thought like, these are the five arguments for why, you know, our marriage is going to work out, et cetera. Uh, uh, it would have been, there would have been something weird and detached about that, right? Uh, there is a way in which our faith in each other, our faith in our friends, our faith in our romantic partners goes beyond uh, what we can sort of intellectually process at any given moment, right? 
And what we want to suggest is that that same balance is at work when we start thinking about God and God's existence. Uh, now, you know, I, I think it's, it, it, this is, this is one of those chapters that people read very differently, like depending on their priors, depending on their background. Right. Uh, and you know, when we were writing the book, I would show it to a group of students. It was kind of like a little focus group. And one of my favorite students, uh, is just this adamant atheist. He came through the God and the good life class and actually like felt like this gave him the kind of courage and the the sort of structure he needed to come out and say like, I am an atheist and here's why. And, you know, so, um, so he, you know, he reads this chapter, uh, and sees the, the sort of the ways in which that interpersonal faith or that model of interpersonal faith, uh, makes us susceptible or vulnerable, right. To, um, being misled. And, and of course that's, that's true, right? If, if you think, um, if you think, look, faith in God is going to require to some extent, uh, a leap of faith or going beyond, you know, uh, sort of the, 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 the airtight certainty, the rational sort of arguments that you've got, you are going to be vulnerable in the same way that again, like I'm, I'm vulnerable, uh, in my marriage to like, I, I could have got it wrong or like, you know, I could mess it up. Right. Uh, you are vulnerable. Uh, other people read this chapter and they think like, um, you know, if, if they're believers, they think, well, no, like, you know, why didn't you sort of give the arguments for God's existence? And then, you know, just, just say that they, they're airtight. They work. You're irrational if you're an atheist, you know, like, and, and, and I think like, well, I don't know, because I, I, I just don't, uh, I just don't think that, that, you know, anyone, even Thomas Aquinas, would have said uh, that that's right, that, that you can read his five arguments. And if you're persisting in your atheism, then like, you know, you're just irrational. You're just crazy. No, I don't think I don't, I don't think that's right. So, you know, it's it's really interesting that the perspective that people bring to this chapter um, and, and the way in which, as you're mentioning, it kind of complicates uh, the the sort of narrative framing um, exercises and and practices that, that throughout the book that we're really encouraging people to engage in, right? Um, because I think people tend to think of, you know, telling stories and making arguments as incredibly different things, uh, maybe even diametrically opposed things. Uh, and and for, you know, certainly in, in my view, um, you know, they, they, they can do different things, but they're not opposed. And they're often, nece- it's often necessary to bring those things together, right? Uh, and I, I, I do, I think that's a philosophical uh, position. I think if you look at Plato, if you look at the Republic, he's telling stories all over the place and he's making arguments and some of his arguments are terrible and some of his stories are terrible and some of his arguments are great. And, you know, um, but, but, but I do think, I do think that's a chapter where that really comes out where it's like, okay, there are these kind of two modes, uh, and, and we're holding them, you know, together. And we're, we're kind of recognizing that, that there are tensions that come up when you start thinking about, uh, you know, the kind of storytelling that we're doing, the arguments that we're giving, uh, and how to integrate those, how to take those in as information, uh, so that you're not, you know, making yourself overly gullible, uh, but you're also not overly intellectualizing, uh, and sort of closing yourself off to, uh, the truth as William James really worries that, that we will, if we, um, you know, really, uh, uh, sort of take a very strict kind of rationalism or something. Right, right. 
And, and, you know, as he as Paul said, I mean, you know, there are, uh, you know, not only uh, apologia se- sections, and I realize everyone pronounces that word different, so I'm going to say apologia, you can say it however you want to say it, uh, you know, where you get, uh, you know, episodes from uh, Megan and Paul's life that illustrate these things. And there are also, at the end of each chapter, self-crafting exercises. And I like these a great deal. And, and the one, uh, the, uh, the self-crafting exercise in the opening God chapter struck me as especially audacious and I like audacious. Um, what is the benefit in terms of the good life of starting up religious disputes with oneself and with others on purpose? Hmm. I think of this a lot uh, uh, along the lines of um, this analogy that I've got with like exercising, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, there are times in my life where I've read really complex religious, like, like, you know, philosophical arguments for some religious pr- position thought like, okay, that makes sense. Right. Like I remember in, in, uh, undergrad, I, I read everything I could about transubstantiation. I was like, okay, I'm convinced it's possible. Right. Metaphysically possible. Now, if you ask me like how transubstantiation works, I'm like, nah, I could like draw like a diagram that I remember from undergrad, but like, it is, it is not like top of mind. It's not like right there. Right. Um, but it's important to go back every now and then and, and refresh yourself on some of these things, um, uh, especially, you know, especially if that uh, really plays a big role in the decisions that you're making in your life. Right. So, you know, if, if you're exercising, if you're working out like, yeah, you can get like a personal record at some point. That doesn't mean that, like, you're just done. Like, you know, uh, you, you've got to go back. You've got to, like, continually sort of, you know, reengage. Right. Um and I think the same thing is true in the intellectual life. Uh, I especially think this is true with, with people that you trust and yet find yourself somehow foundationally disagreeing about something. So suppose I, I you know, I have a friend and and this friend thinks, gosh, like, you know, it could be a small thing. It could be a like small doctrinal thing. It could be a huge thing. I really think you're, you're wrong about, uh, you know, uh, your religious belief here. I, I don't think that this is the right way to look at the world. Well, if they're right, then man, like that is that there couldn't be anything more important for me to figure out, right? And and again, given that I I trust them and given that I look at them and I think like, man, they're kind of an exemplar in a lot of ways and they're you know a good model. Uh what better resource could I ask for than somebody who's living and embodying a certain view to go with me on this journey to really investigate some belief that I've got. Right. Uh, so I think, I think, um, yeah, I I think it's important, uh, to revisit these questions from time to time. And, and, you know, depending on the the stage of life you're in, uh, you know, it's going to look different. I've got four kids under six right now. So like, like doctrinal disputes about like the metaphysics of the Eucharist are not top of mind for me right now. It's like, I'll get back to that in 10 years. Um, but, but, you know, it'll look different, but, but I do think that, that, you know, and, and, you know, this is part of my commitment to the Aristotelian idea that we're reflective creatures that we, uh, you know, ought to have reasons for what we believe. Um, I do think that, that, that this is just, a, a an essential part of living well is, is revisiting these reasons that you have for your deepest held beliefs. Uh, and again, I, th- I think, you know, doing that with somebody who's going to look at your views charitably, whether that's yourself, because you, you don't want to be wrong, or friends that you trust. Uh, yeah, I just think that's a, a, a really incredible opportunity.
Very good. And and Britt, if you could edit out that pause, I was in the wrong tab when I unmuted there. Um, your last uh, full chat, well, let me back that up. Okay, Britt, you're going to have to cut out a lot here. I, I apologize for that. Towards the end of the book, you make a case for contemplation as a genuine element or even the center of a good life. And your reasons strike me as Boethian. So to contemplate, if I'm getting you right, doesn't rely on good luck the way that pursuits of influence or money or security or power seem to rely on good luck. But that's the negative case uh, for contemplation. What positive case does this book make and what positive case would you make for contemplation? This is great. This is uh, something I've been wrestling with and thinking about a lot in the past year or so. Uh, and again, really in connection with the philosophy of work uh, uh, sort of thinking that I've been doing. Um, so if you read the Nicomachean Ethics, you get to the end, right? Uh, and here's Aristotle talking about how uh, the contemplative life is the highest form of life. Or, you know, if you're trying to balance like contemplation and action, you should really ultimately be aiming at something contemplative. Uh, and, and he really kind of fizzles out, right? He's like, look, the contemplative life uh, it, it, you know, takes what's best in us and he it, it elevates that it's this kind of activity that is as close to the activity of the gods that we can get to. And yet we really can't do it that well. And it's super mysterious. The end and you're like, what? Like, this is like, this is, you know, a very crucial kind of concept. This is playing a huge role. Uh, and so, so over the past year or so, you know, I've really tried to um, investigate uh, uh, kind of the the um, sort of value, the goods of contemplation and think about what it looks like. Uh, and I think you can find very different uh, sources that, that that talk about this kind of stuff. Now, obviously, you can look at religious sources like Aquinas or, you know, you can you can think kind of a, a you know, in a, a religious mode about this. And there's a way in which theoretically that really helps, right? Because yeah, contemplation, it's like, um, you know, worship, it's like uh, engaging in, in sort of this uh, divine activity where you're, you're sort of connecting. And at a theoretical level, that's very satisfying to me. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I, I get why Aristotle couldn't really like sketch out the full picture. I get how, you know, somebody like Aquinas could sketch out a better picture, but even Aquinas, right? Even Aquinas says, you know, when he engaged in this kind of contemplation uh, in these religious experiences toward the end of his life, you know, he couldn't really describe it and he couldn't really like tell us much about, you know, why, why, why this is such a great thing. Okay. So the, the place that I've gone to uh, is uh, looking at uh, discussions of leisure and discussions of um, uh, the role that leisure should play in a well-lived life uh, and the way in which leisure is a kind of essentially contemplative activity that we've really lost sight of in our contemporary culture. Uh, this is the 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 sort of uh, place where I've gotten the most sort of you know footholds. Uh, okay, so so let me try to explain this again. Sorry, very very, very briefly. Um, so uh, Joseph Pieper has this wonderful book called Leisure is the Basis of Culture, and he says. You know, he agrees with Aristotle, he agrees with sort of the, the medievals. He says, look, we are essentially contemplative creatures. And in our contemporary society, we've completely lost any notion of what it is to genuinely 
engage in contemplative activity because we have become so active. Everything we do is achievement oriented. We're always trying to, 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 you know, like make more money or, or have more power, have more influence. Like you were saying a second ago, uh, he says, we've really lost this idea that there is a reality that is around us that we can become attuned to, but not for the purpose of mastering it or subordinating it to our ends, right? Uh, and there's a distinctive mode of engagement that we've got to learn if we want to attune ourselves to that reality in the right sort of way. Uh, now, there's a lot of contemporary thinkers who have offered really beautiful reflections on, on you know, what this could look like. One of my favorites is Byung-Chul Han, uh, who's got this uh, book, The Burnout Society, where he talks about this as a kind of profound boredom, uh, where he talks about, you know, engaging in uh, pointless or, uh, you know, uh, goalless, uh, atelic, you know, sort of activity uh, uh, as, you know, intrinsically meaningful. Um, okay, so so why do this? In my class on the philosophy of work, I ask my students, you know, when is the last time that you were really engaged in some sort of leisure? Like, when is the last time that you really rested, right? Uh, and at first, they're all like, oh, yesterday, like, I you know, played Xbox for a while. And I'm like, okay, but why'd you do that? And they're like, well, I was exhausted. I was studying. And so, like, you know, I needed to, like, re re relax and recharge and, like, go back to the books. And I was like, okay, well, that's not really leisure. That's not really contemplation. That's not really sort of attunement to reality, uh, if Peeper is right, right? Um, really, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're subordinating even your downtime to this kind of logic of productivity, this kind of cycle, right? Uh, and in ways that, you know, again, Byung-Chul Han and a lot of others are going to say, like, characteristically makes us a society of burnout, et cetera. And so, so we sit there and we think, okay, well, what would this look like? Uh, and then in the class, actually, uh, where I do this, I say, okay, everybody put your phones on your desk, put your laptops on your desk. I want you for the next like 15, 20 minutes to go outside and just to become profoundly bored, uh, and contemplate some, some sort of, you know, like piece of reality on campus, whether it's a tree or whatever it is, just like become attuned to it. Uh, and the experience is so jarring. They come back and, and you know, they they, they say like, man, and, and I, I'm, you know, as, as guilty of this as anybody, like the, the, to be without my phone for 10 minutes, you know, at first you're just like, what am I, like, what am I doing? Like, you know, it's terrifying. But after a while, what you do is you, you realize, gosh, you know, there is a way of, of sort of, you know, opening yourself to reality of, of, of sort of being that we just don't tap into ever, right? And for me, again, putting this into practice, like when people put this into practice and not in a, a instrumentalized way, not like, you know, I'm going to do mindfulness because that's going to give me better focus, but rather, you know, I'm going to, you know, sit in silence, meditate, pray, go on a nature walk, whatever it is for its own sake. Uh, when you engage in those sorts of activities, regularly, habitually, uh, you know, for me, the real uh, sort of um, power um, of doing that is you then kind of reflect back and you think like, 
man, so much of my life is just busyness. It's just craziness. It's just distraction. It's just attachment. And it really recenters you, right? Uh, so, so I don't know, I guess, I guess if we wanted to make a case for it, I would say, do it, <laughs> like learn how to do it, do it. Uh, and just for me, you, you just see, man, how rich that is, how much it, it sort of, you know, um, uh, recenters you just sort of takes your mind, uh, uh, out of, you know, all of these kind of distractive pursuits to coin a term. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, listeners, I mean, one book that I have recommended to a number of people is the, uh, the book, uh, meditation for fidgety skeptics. Hmm. Uh, it was published just a few years ago, but, uh, you know, his case for it is, is, I won't say identical with yours, but it's analogous. It's a, you know, don't meditate so that you can do more at work. Uh, meditate so that you are less atrocious to the human beings in your life. And nice. I, that, that, that that strikes me as a good reason. And I've, I've taken it up over the last few years. So I, <laughs> well, Paul, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about eudaimonia, philosophy teaching, or whatever else as we head for the door? Yeah, I think, you know, my big goal in the class and my big goal in um, writing this book with Megan is I want people to see philosophers as potential conversation partners. Uh, and I think, you know, th th there are a lot of barriers to that. Like we philosophers are kind of like prickly people sometimes. And, you know, we get obsessed with our own sort of like, you know, intellectual arguments and reasons, whatever. There are a lot of barriers to it. But I think now more than ever, there are resources, there are people who are making these ideas accessible and the ideas are so rich and they're so interesting. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know that what they want is some philosophy in their life. Uh, but, but in accessing these resources, you know, and reading a couple of books like this or, or, you know, uh, just even going on YouTube, there's some really incredible uh, YouTube channels, like podcasts like this, um, I think what people will discover is philosophy can offer them what they're looking for uh, elsewhere. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of my students uh, will come up after class and they'll say, man, like I didn't know that I was doing philosophy, but it turns out I was, or I didn't know I, I wanted to be doing philosophy. You know, in my own life, I'll often think like, you know, I'll, ha I'll have some like existential question and I'll just like Google. I'll be like, you know, how to be a better friend. I'll be like, why am I looking at the internet for this? Right. Like there are, you know, Roman like Stoics. There are, you know, virtue ethicists. There are people that spent their entire life thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and so, so for me, um, you know, my, my goal in the, in the class and writing the book, my goal is that, you know, when our students, when, when readers, kind of bump up against some of these really big questions, right? Uh, how can I be happier? You know, how can I become a better person? Like, why do I have so many bad habits? Uh, you know, uh, that they'll remember that they'll think, you know, Aristotle had something to say about that. Or like, Plato, maybe Plato is a, is somebody to go to. I don't know, Plato's tricky. But, you know, uh, you know like, uh, um, that there, there is an entire tradition. There's a whole community there's a whole sort of, uh, you know, um, way of thinking uh, that that you can access, that you can tap into. Uh, that's really what I want people to take away from this, that, that you know, that these 
uh, philosophers, can be conversation partners, can be friends, can be kind of intellectual um, um, partners uh, as we all kind of navigate the world and, and, and really try to find happiness and meaning and, and, and purpose. Um, that's, that's really what I want people to take away. Paul Blaschko, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Good Life Method from Penguin. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.